This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Today's show was recorded by Covering Climate Now. It was a briefing for journalists. Mark Herzgard and Laura Helmuth introduced the best climate science you never heard of. Covering Climate Now and Scientific American are thrilled today to have two of the world's most distinguished climate scientists joining us for this conversation. And we scheduled this session to help all journalists get up to speed before the next IPCC report. That's the sixth assessment working group two. That is due to be released on February 28, as you probably know. And then working group three report comes sometime in March. So we titled today's session, The Best Climate Science You've Never Heard Of, even though the science in question was included in the working group IPCC report last August. It was in there, but it was buried. So virtually no one outside of the climate science community seems to know about this, unless you read Scientific American's article on this, which was published just a few days before last November's COP26 climate summit in Glasgow. This is I hope this conversation today helps fortify you in your conversations inside your newsroom with your assignment editors and the, the gatekeepers who decide how big this story gets played. Make sure that the February 28 release of the Working Group 2 report is not buried inside. It's not given 20 seconds at the end of the broadcast. We face a climate emergency, as Salim was saying earlier, and we as journalists have got to be clear about that. That is what the science says. We as journalists should be following the science. Uh, so the gist of this largely unknown science, and obviously we'll dig into the details uh, in the course of this hour, but the gist is that contrary to long-held assumptions, large amounts of temperature rise are not necessarily locked into the Earth's climate system. As soon as emissions are cut to zero, temperature rise can stop within as little as three years. Three years, not the 30 to 40 years that I, for one, have been reporting for a long time and that most of us as journalists thought was the scientific consensus. So the upshot of this revised science is that humanity can still limit temperature rise to the 1.5 degrees Celsius target, but only if we take strong action starting. Now, I hope you will all join me in giving a very warm virtual welcome to our guest today, starting again with my esteemed co-moderator, Laura Helmuth. She's the editor-in-chief of Scientific American. Great, thank you so much. Uh, thank you to today's speakers. Thanks to Covering Climate Now for bringing us all together. And uh, thank you to all of you in the audience. And I think we wanna dive right in, um, start with the, with the premise, the whole framing of this, of this meeting uh, that Mark laid out, which is that a lot of us you know, have had the impression that a certain amount of temperature rise is just unavoidable, um, perhaps 30 to 40 years, no matter what we do right now. Um, 
based on the greenhouse gases that are already in the atmosphere. But but the latest science or you know the emerging science, the science that's really gotten uh, much more clear recently is that that's not the case and that temperature could stop rising in as little as three years. And so Mike, could you start us out, kind of explain, you know, why do we think this? Where did the science come from? How do we know that things could turn around so quickly? Yeah, and thanks, uh, Laura. Thanks, Mark, and everybody else for uh, you know helping uh, make uh, for this conversation here today. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll confide something in you all. I didn't really appreciate uh, this aspect of the science uh, until about five years ago, and it goes back more than a decade. The body of work that leads to this sort of revised understanding really does go back more than a decade yet, but it didn't even fully penetrate into sort of uh, the scientific community until more recently. Um, And it it has to do with, um, there is a notion that has been out there for a while, uh, the notion of a carbon budget, this idea that there is some slug of carbon that we can still burn and keep temperatures below some level be it one and a half degrees Celsius, three, three degrees Fahrenheit roughly, or two degrees Celsius. Um, and so the reason that that concept makes sense, the reason that we can say there's a certain amount of cumulative carbon that we can burn and keep surface temperatures below some level is because of this science. The, 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 the concept of a carbon budget only makes sense because once you stop burning carbon, Uh, surface temperatures stabilize. That means that the surface temperature that you end up with really is a function of the cumulative carbon emissions up to that point in time. And so uh, here is sort of why this understanding has, um, you know, and so even though it's implicit in much of what the, uh, you know, the the climate community has been talking about in recent years, the concept of carbon budgets and stabilization of warming below these critical levels, Um, We haven't really done a good job on unpacking the science behind that. Why does that work? And the reason it works is that we aren't committed to additional decades of warming as we used to think we were. Now, in the old days, uh, we would run our climate models with carbon dioxide as sort of a control knob. It's just something that you dial up and you can dial it up, you can dial it down in the model. And so you're fixing the concentration of carbon dioxide and when you increase the carbon dioxide level, the climate slowly equilibrates to that higher level. And the reason that equilibration process is slow is there is what we call the sort of the the, uh, climate commitment, which is the oceans store a huge amount of heat and they're very sluggish. So they continue to warm up even after you stop increasing the carbon dioxide concentration. So if you increase carbon dioxide levels to, you know, say double, pre-industrial levels, and then you stop increasing them, what you'll see is that the planet will warm up for several more decades as it approaches the new equilibrium. Now, that's we call that the climate commitment. There is this additional warming, we call it committed warming, that is in the pipeline. If that's all that we're going on, that was going on, then we would be committed to additional decades uh, of warming. But it turns out You know, you've got this curve going like that, but there's another curve going in the opposite direction. And that has to do with the fact that carbon dioxide levels actually start coming down once you stop emitting carbon into the atmosphere. And that's because natural sinks, particularly the ocean, uh, continue to take carbon out of the atmosphere. And we call that the carbon commitment. These two things are equal and opposite. One goes like that. The other goes like that. 
And if you add them together, they offset each other, you get a flat line. And so what that tells us is actually, if you stop emitting carbon into the atmosphere, surface temperatures stabilize very quickly within a few years. Now there's some caveats here, that surface temperature, but remember that the oceans are continuing to absorb heat. Um, that heat is continuing to penetrate down into the oceans, um, that ocean warming is continuing to destabilize ice shelves like the ice shelves off Antarctica. So some impacts will continue to get worse and sea level rise is one of them. There was just a report yesterday. Um, some of you may, it may have seen this, a NOAA uh, report on sea level rise that tells us that we've got at least a foot now uh, off the US, uh, uh, you know, the sea level rise along the East coast of the US. We're gonna get another foot no matter what we do that's baked in. We can prevent that foot from turning into meters by, by, keep, you know, by keeping carbon emissions, again, below those critical levels to limit warming below one and a half Celsius. Um, so, so there you have it. Um, it's taken a while for the scientific community itself to really come to an understanding of this, this new paradigm. And it's been um, an even slower process to really, uh, you know, to to translate that for public consumption. Great, thank you. And so there's some, some questions in the comments about, you know, we've talked, you've, you've talked about carbon dioxide, um, but what about methane? Does this, uh, do these projections account for the effects of methane? Yeah, you know, here's the, there's the good news and the bad news about methane. Uh, the, the good news about methane is that it's a much shorter residence time in the atmosphere. So these dynamics I'm talking about don't really apply to methane. Um, if, if uh, you know, the, the methane that we put into the atmosphere is only warming uh, the planet for a matter of decades rather than centuries or millennia. And so what that means is that if we uh, bring, uh, you know, methane emissions to zero, that effect dissipates within decades. It's not locked in like the effect of carbon dioxide. And so when you look at this in detail, you see it isn't just the carbon dioxide story. There's methane. There are sulfate aerosols. The pollution generated from coal burning has actually offset some of global warming. These reflective particles uh, we call aerosols, they're not like a spray can, uh, but they're these little particles that reflect sunlight. And so pollution associated with coal burning, for example, um, has offset some of global warming. Uh, we, we, we call that aerosol masking and that masking will dissipate pretty quickly. When we stop burning fossil fuels, we also stop um, and, and I should make a distinction here between sort of the cleaner burning of fossil fuels here in the United States, where we've got scrubbers that capture the sulfur dioxide. Um, and that was passed in the 1970s, the Clean Air Acts, to you know, prevent acid rain, other problems. Um, and so we're already sort of capturing that sulfur dioxide that generates these aerosols. But there's other, other areas of the world where they're not doing that. There's dirtier uh, you know, uh, coal burning. And that if we, if we shut down you know, uh, fossil fuel burning, including coal burning, then those aerosols disappear. And so you get some extra warming out of that. So you get some extra warming out of that, but you offset that if you bring methane down and some of these other shorter term greenhouse gases. And it's all sort of in the wash. All those things also sort of cancel out as well. And so you're, you're not too far in the end from the picture that I presented. Great, thank you. And quickly, uh, how do changes that are happening now affect the trajectory of when we get to 1.5 degrees warming or two degrees? And it's all tied together. You know, we talk about if we want to limit warming below one and a half degrees Celsius, three Fahrenheit, 
We've got to bring, we've all heard this, um, these numbers now, we've got to bring carbon emissions down by 50% within this decade. So we've got to come down the other side of the mountain. The good news is we're sort of uh, riding along the summit now. Those carbon emissions are no longer rising, but we've got to bring them down and we've got to bring them down quickly. Uh, we've got to come halfway down the mountain uh, in 10 years. And the reason we know that is because of the concept of the carbon budget, which is based on the, the science that we're talking about. So it all sort of comes together to tell us that if we want to prevent the surface temperature of the planet, the average surface temperature from crossing that dangerous one and a half degree Celsius threshold, we've got to reduce carbon emissions by 50% within this decade. Um, and that really you know, informed, uh, has been informing very prominently the discussions, for example, in Glasgow, COP26 policy right now is being driven by this understanding that that's where we need to get to. Halfway down by 2030, and all the way down to zero, the bottom of the mountain by 2050. You're listening to Radio 3CR and Radio Skid Row. This was a briefing for journalists from climate scientist Michael Mann in the USA and Dr. Salim Ulhaq in Bangladesh. It was called the best climate science you never heard of. And Mark, you and Mike and Salim have, you're working on an opinion article. Um, and I think we'll, we'll be able to at least have a link to sort of a teaser about this. Um, but it, it kind of focuses on the implications, um, the psychological, behavioral, and social implications of this research. And I've got to say, it starts, at least the draft I've seen, starts out with a great lead, uh, which is, quote, one of the biggest obstacles to avoiding global climate breakdown is that so many people think there's nothing we can do about it. And um, would you like to tell us a bit about, you know, some, some of the implications of this research and how it can... Uh, inform and change and advance how we think about it? Sure, I really do think this is a paradigm shift in the implications of climate science. I say that as somebody who's covered the climate beat for 30 years now, and it was always seen as something that we kind of can't get out of. And I think these implications fall into what I call the three Ps, uh, the uh, psychology of climate, uh, the politics of climate, and the policy. The psychology is, if you listen to what Mike says here, that to boil it down in, into non-scientist's terms, is that we can stop the temperature rise within three years once we zero out emissions. So that means that we're not necessarily doomed after all. And I must say, as someone who talks to a lot of people uh, about this, the first question that people often ask is, well, what can I do about it? And a lot of people don't even get there because they said, oh, it's just impossible. In fact, uh, when I was writing this piece with Mike and Salim, I kept thinking about the teenage daughter of a good friend of mine who's out there on the barricade. She's carrying her sign. She's marching and all of that as a high school student. But she came home to her dad one night and said, you know, dad, I, I don't, I'm, I'm going to keep doing this, but I don't, I'm not quite sure why. It's, it's, we're, we're kind of doomed. And this science is the answer to that is that it's not a get out of jail free card. I see the comments in the chat. Yes, there's a lot of stuff that's still locked in. Yes, there's gonna be a lot of sea level rise. Yes, the oceans are gonna keep warming. Yes, they're gonna keep acidifying. There's a lot of work to do. But if we lower the emissions quickly, we can get there, we can avoid the worst. So that's the psychology. And because of that, I think that also potentially changes the politics. Because then people, instead of saying, oh, I'm not gonna march anymore, I'm not gonna vote, I'm just gonna tune out and go, make the best of it. Uh, people will say, well, let's get involved. 
Let me make sure I vote. Let's go out and register people to vote. Let's go out there and march in the street. Let's let our local officials all the way up to national officials know we have an emergency here and we've got to do something about it. And once you bring a lot of people into the political process, that's how you get change. Change does not come from the top. It comes from pressure from the bottom. All of history shows us this. And then finally, the third P, if you change those politics and you change who gets elected and who gets voted out, then the policies that you can approach, that you can pursue rather, become different. Right? Imagine if there were not a 50-50 split in the United States Senate right now, but rather that the Democrats had a majority. You would have had Build Back Better legislation already. What if they had a really strong majority? You could have even had uh, Green New Deal legislation. What really is needed, that level of emergency response. So those are the three things that I think can really change. All three Ps, the psychology of it, the politics of it, and that changes the policies. I think we know here at Covering Climate Now from looking at the social science research that what people in general, not just young people, what they want from journalism is not just, oh, it's bad, 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 not doom and gloom. They want also, what do we do about it? So there's a whole uh, sort of school of, of thought and practice in journalism called solutions journalism. Now, let me make it clear, this is not cheerleading, this is not activism, this is not saying, oh, we gotta go do this and, and campaigning. Rather, it is telling the whole story. It is telling what the problem is, but also what the solution is. And the social science research shows that people are very tired, sort of average people, when they look at the news, it's all bad news. If it bleeds, it leads. I'm tired of that. So they tune us out, right? Whereas if you give them the whole picture, yes, there's a problem here. Yes, the earth is overheated now, but here's how you fix it. That not only makes them want to uh, get involved, but speaking candidly as a journalist, it builds our audience, right? They're gonna come back, they're gonna watch your show, they're gonna read your stuff. So I think that's the opportunity here for journalists is to recognize that our coverage will be both more true to the science and more helpful to our audiences and to frankly humanity's survival if we tell the whole story, including the good parts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That is the challenge of our careers is to not be unremittingly grim, uh, you know, to be honest and completely clear about what's happening, but not make it seem hopeless or, you know, re reveal in which ways it's not hopeless. So thanks for, for spelling that out so nicely. Um, but I want to go now to Salim for some some opening discussion. And thanks so much for joining us. Uh, so I, I want to talk. Thank you for joining us. You're you're coming to us from Bangladesh. Um, really glad you could make it. Thanks for staying up late. Uh, could you speak a bit about uh, some of the work you've done uh, in Bangladesh and in general about helping uh, representatives of what you know what we call the global south, which is you know doesn't mean necessarily countries in the southern hemisphere. It's referring uh, kind of more broadly to some of the countries that are I think suffering the most from the climate emergency, but the least responsible for it. Um, how does this sort of science influence um, you know the the message and the, uh, the 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 policies that that you think will be most important for the global south? Hey, thank you very much, uh, Laura, and thank you. Uh, for organizing this event and inviting me. And greetings from 
uh, Dhaka, Bangladesh, uh, where it's nearly midnight here. So I'll, I'll segue off Mark's uh, last comments in that, you know, my country, Bangladesh, is one of the biggest victims of the impacts of climate change, one of the most vulnerable. And if anybody had a right to be doom and gloom, it's us. But we're not. We have been facing climate change for the last decade. You guys have just started hearing about it, but we've been facing it. And we are facing it successfully. We are dealing with the impacts of climate change from 1.1 degree centigrade that has already happened due to human-induced climate change. You know, staying below 1.5 is a goal, but dealing with the 1.1 that's already happened is reality for us. And it's going to be reality for you as well. And so in our case, we are now finding ways to tackle it. And as Mark says, we are in the solution space to the problem, not in the problem space of the problem, not dissecting the problem endlessly, but finding solutions to the problem. And in Bangladesh, 170 million people living on uh, a delta of two of the biggest rivers in the world, the Ganges and the Brahmaputra, regularly flooded, regularly hit by cyclones. We are leading the world in adaptation to climate change, and specifically what we call locally-led adaptation by the people themselves. The most vulnerable people in Bangladesh now are the best adapters in the world because they are facing the problem and they are tackling the problem. They aren't solving it. It's still happening. We still get the floods and the cyclones, but they don't defeat us, and we are resilient and building our resilience to deal with them. And that's a lesson that all countries will have to learn because all countries are going to be hit, um, even if we are able to bring the emissions down quickly and uh, stabilize the, uh, the temperature goal. Nevertheless, we are going to face impacts in the near term. All countries are going to face them, and all countries are going to have to learn to adapt and also face now increasingly what we call loss and damage from the impacts of climate change, uh, which we will hear about, I'm pretty sure, in the upcoming Working Group 2 report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change coming out in a matter of days. Uh, it was discussed in COP26 in Glasgow. We didn't get it resolved, but it is an issue that's not going to go away. We're going to have to deal with it. You, when, when thinking about this you know, revised understanding of the science, um, do you think from a policy perspective, do you see potential for it to spur better action or do you think it's going to be used to kind of justify dawdling uh, at, with, with climate commitments? Um, how do you think this could play out for the, in the policy world? Well, I'm quite disappointed by the policy world. As you mentioned, we had an agreement in 2015 in Paris that was the, the height of the achievement of the global policy discussions under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. But th since then, we've just seen dawdling. And even the latest conference of parties in Glasgow, we didn't get the kind of progress that we wanted. You know, the vulnerable countries went to Glasgow asking for the Glasgow outcome to be called the Glasgow Climate Emergency Pact. And what happened in the end? The United States and the UK and the other rich countries downgraded it to the Glasgow climate pact. The word emergency was removed. The feeling of emergency was not felt. And they don't feel the emergency. And I agree with Mark. It's their kids who are going to make them feel the emergency because the old people, and this is true for all countries, including my own, the old people don't get it. The young people do. And so we are going to have to change from the bottom up. The young people are going to have to change the elders to make the changes that are necessary and needed because the elders have failed us quite clearly. 30 years of failure 
of not heeding the advice from the scientific community. I, I'd like to think one of the reasons that Bangladesh has faced climate change uh, relatively um, creatively and, and with a lot of a lot of effort and a lot of uh, experimentation is that um, journalists are very engaged in covering climate. Would you say have you have you noticed that that in in Bangladesh that you you know is are there lessons for for journalists around the world about about climate coverage that you'd like to share? Absolutely. So you know it's midnight in Bangladesh, and I've already seen in the in the the chat box a number of Bangladeshis who have tuned in uh, for this session, uh, including journalists. Okay, so it gives you the the level of interest here. I'll give you uh, an anecdote about the level of awareness in Bangladesh about climate change, which I claim, I have no basis for this claim, uh, that is the highest awareness in the world on climate change. People in Bangladesh know what climate change is. And I'll give you one anecdote. When we were in Glasgow in the COP, it's a two week long event. We had the leaders come for the first day. We got all the media come to cover the leaders. You know, Joe Biden was there. Uh, um, Boris Johnson was there, Mike, Pr Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina was there. The journalists all came, covered the leaders' speeches, and then the leaders left and the journalists all left. Then there were two weeks of negotiations. Now, from Bangladesh, there were three private television channels who sent journalists to Glasgow, and each of them were broadcasting live from Bra Glasgow every single day to a very general audience in Bangladesh of people who were following the negotiations every single day. They were following who said what on which topics until the very end when the, uh, the rest of the world's journalists came for the very end to just cover the end of the story. The Bangladeshi audience, the people in Bangladesh were following it on a day by day track. I don't think any other countries, people not even in Glasgow, in Scotland or in the UK who was hosting the event actually followed it in the detail that the Bangladeshi people were able to do. And journalists in particular played a big role in doing that. I am not in love, but I'm open to persuasion. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. I also saw a question here about how the fact that this science was included last August in the IPCC report, but buried, but included, makes it tricky to report now. And I would just say to my journalistic colleagues, with all due respect, we have got to get over this idea that because something appeared someplace and uh, is, our, is not new, that somehow it is not news. News is not just what is new. News is also what is important. And if something was missed and we missed it, our audiences should not pay for that by us keeping that information from them. We should rather, we should rectify that as soon as possible. That's what Salim and Mike and I are trying to do with our paper. We're covering climate now is trying to do today. We urge everyone, all the journalists on this call, please write about this. Uh, I turn it over to Craig Miller. He's with PBS News. Mike, you might remember uh, a few years ago, uh, you and I did an interview, which was memorable for me because I asked you point blank, does this mean we are screwed 
already by climate breakdown, uh, which is the new term that I'm using. And you basically said, yes, uh, it's just a question of how screwed we want to be uh, would determine how we move forward. Have you changed your position on that in light of this new science? And how do scientists like yourself balance telling the hard truths with not wanting people to give up hope? Because I worry a little bit about the potential emergence of what you might call wishful science. Yeah, thanks, uh, Craig. It's good to hear from you. And, um, you know, indeed, uh, in my messaging, uh, and, and I think we heard that with Salim and Mark as well, uh, it's really about communicating both the urgency, and the urgency is very clear, but the agency as well. Um, and, you know, there are various versions of that, uh, you know, that statement that you quoted. I think when I talked to you, um, I used one word. Uh, in other contexts, I've, you know, I've said that, you know, it's not whether or not we're effed. It's a question of how effed we are. And what I mean by that, and, and that still very much applies. If you're Bangladesh, if you're Puerto Rico, if you're California, Australia, um, Florida, an increasing number of you know, places around the world, you're seeing the devastating impacts of climate change now. So we can't avoid climate danger, climate damage, because it's here. But what we can do is try to limit that damage. Mm -hmm. And this latest science really does reinforce that narrative. Um, what it tells us, and I say this latest science, it's 10-year-old science, but our full appreciation of the implications of that science um, tells us that there is this direct and immediate impact of the actions that we take today to lower carbon emissions. And it very much translates to implications for the policy discussion as well. So no, I haven't changed my views at all. If anything, I think I've just sort of clarified uh, the reason for them. Neil asks, I think, a very pertinent question here. And maybe you know the answer to this, Mike. I'll hazard one too, which is how, why was it that this very important science was included but buried in the uh, last August IPCC report, the Working Group One report. How and why did that happen? And I'll just remind people that as a journalist covering it, you know, even though I knew the science because Mike and I had been talking about it, I didn't know it was in that report until after I, you know, talked to people like Mike and others. So why was that? I think part of it might be something you said to me, Mike, at the time, which was, Sometimes scientists don't realize what everybody else doesn't know. And that's partly on the scientists and it's partly on us as journalists. It's our job to pull that out. But Mike, do you have any inside knowledge about why that wasn't, um, why this revised science wasn't made more of a big deal of in the uh, in last August report? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I, and I think uh, exactly, you know, what you say, sometimes we don't necessarily connect the dots um, you know, we, we can jump from point A to point B based on, you know, our scientific knowledge and expertise. Um, and so we skip steps. It's sort of like, you know, in homework, uh, you know, back in high school, if you didn't show your work, sometimes we don't show our work and maybe we should be docked some points for that. Um, and, 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 and part of that is this fact that, you know, the reason we can talk about a carbon budget, why can we do that? It's because of this understanding um, it's because of this revised understanding. And I was going to mention one more thing. Sometimes an analogy can be very powerful. Um, and one analogy I like to use here is sort of carbon levels. The CO2 concentration in the atmosphere is like the water level in your sink. 
And if you have the faucet on and the drain closed, that water level is rising um, and it'll continue to rise as long as that situation is the CO2 will continue to rise. When you turn off the faucet, it'll stop rising. That's a fixed carbon dioxide concentration. But actually we've got the drain open. The drain are those natural sinks. And so the faucet is off and the drain is opening. That means the water level is going to come down. And that's really the, you know, the, the crux of the, the carbon cycle dynamics, if you will, the technical term that we use for that. Um, and so we were for too long sort of communicating the analogy of the faucet being turned off um, and the water level stops rising, but we weren't talking about the drain, the drain being open. And that's a critical component of it. That's a, that's a really helpful analogy, Mike. I thank you for that. And we're going to go to the Forbes question. But first, just quickly to you, Salim, you mentioned how much more knowledgeable and interested both journalists and the general public in Bangladesh are uh, in climate stuff in general. My question is, would this revised science, is this news in Bangladesh as well, or do people already understand this? No, I think this is news uh, in, in Bangladesh as well. It's fairly new for me as well. You know, I'm not a, a climate scientist like Mike is. I, I defer to Mike to tell me what's happening on the climate side. But I, I work on the impact side. And, you know, to give you another uh, uh, hidden uh, element of the AR6 Working Group 1 report, uh, which said that climate change was unequivocally now happening and we are seeing impacts. That was, again, something that, in my view, didn't get uh, uh, publicity enough by the journalists and we certainly didn't get a reaction enough by the policymakers in COP26 because we are now suffering loss and damage from human-induced climate change that is now attributable scientifically to the fact that we have raised temperature by over one degree because of the emissions of greenhouse gases. And, you know, countries like Bangladesh have been suffering this for a long time, but even you in the United States are suffering this now as a result of this increase. That to me has not been well reflected in the coverage of the science of uh, uh, climate change from the IPCC reports. So thanks, Salim. Again, just quickly, that's Salim Al-Haq. He is with the International Center for Climate Change and Development in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Also with us today, Dr. Michael Mann of Penn State University and my esteemed colleague at Scientific American, Laura Helmuth. Uh, I'll just remind people based on what Salim just said, the next IPCC report is coming up February 28th. Let's learn from our mistakes on the last one. And one way to do that is to interview scientists in advance of that report and then immediately after uh, and find out what they know from the inside of it. Don't just listen to the press briefings and the press releases. Talk to a few journalists, uh, sorry, sorry, talk to a few scientists about this. Come to our website, by the way, covering climate now. We have a whole science uh, vertical there that you can read background and some of the scientists to talk to about this to get your uh, get yourselves up to speed <clears throat> in order to cover this February 28 report and of course the report in March. Now uh, I'm going to turn to our colleague from Forbes, uh, James Conka, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing your name, but uh, please unmute yourself and go ahead. Excellent, thank you. No, it's perfect, perfect pronunciation. I think you've already um, answered it um, with. Um, with the atmospheric half-life of CO2 at about 30 years, actually up to 300, depending on, upon the mechanism of removal, um, you're saying that when we stop 
increasing emissions or when they stabilize and start dropping, um, that, that, that the temperature was stabilized. Uh, so even with that long of a half-life, um, you still think it's, it'll stabilize fairly quickly. Mike, why don't you take that? Yeah. So, you know, the, again, we don't often do the best job of communicating the fact that the, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is building up at about half the rate we would expect if all of the activity, fossil fuel burning and other carbon pollution generating activity, um, if we total up, you know, everything that we're emitting into the atmosphere, um, the concentration of the atmosphere is only rising half as fast as we would expect. That's because these sinks, these natural sinks of the uh, terrestrial biosphere, you know, plants on land and the oceans have been taking up about half of that carbon. So it is implicit um, whenever we talk about the ocean carbon cycle, uh, this chemistry, this physics is, is part of it. And so what it tells us is that the, the carbon dioxide uh, concentrations do slowly come down as the ocean absorbs that carbon, as the terrestrial biosphere absorbs that carbon. Now, here's the problem, and, and we've already seen some reference to this. Um, that actually means that ocean acidification, which is from the atmospheric CO2 that's going into the ocean, acidifying the ocean, that continues to get worse. Ocean warming, deep ocean warming continues on. That destabilizes ice shelves. It contributes to sea level rise. So again, you know, as uh, as Mark said, this isn't a get out of jail card. Um, uh, there is some additional damage that is locked in and we're going to need to, to deal with that. And that means ad adaptation and resilience. Um, and, you know, I was just one more comment. The breakdown in discussions at Glasgow um, were, were kind of complicated. And part of the problem was actually, you know, surprisingly, it wasn't the, the, the sort of typical industrial countries. It was India. A developing, developing country that very late in the game sort of went back on the agreement and said, no, we're not going to commit to phasing out carbon language. We went phase down. Now, you could blame India, but that would be wrong because I think part of what India was doing is sending a message that, look, the industrial countries haven't ponied up. They haven't provided the resources that they had promised to the developing world to help them you know, grow their economy in a, in a carbon friendly way to uh, deal with and, and mitigate the impacts that they're, we're now feeling. And so there was some real politics going on there. And in the industrial countries, the G7, G20 countries really do need to step up their commitment to the rest of the world if we're all going to come together on this. The good news is we're going to revisit that in less than a year. We're not waiting five years this time. Uh, the COP26 commitments will be Revi uh, you know, revisited uh, within a year. Yes, they'll be revisited at COP27, which is taking place this coming November in Egypt. And the uh, head of Egypt's government just said the other day that this, indeed, this whole question of social justice and uh, the global north paying its fair share to help countries of the global south turn away from fossil fuels will be a primary focus. I love to hear the constructive skepticism that is coming through in some of these questions. That's exactly our job as journalists. And uh, let's just keep at it. But the, the main point here, let's not forget, is that it is still possible if we move quickly. Thank you. It's Jonathan Levy. Yes, and I spent uh, an intense two weeks at uh, COP26 as well, talking to some of the IPCC authors and others. Um, I guess, first of all, picking up on the point that you were just making, we've still got a long way to go to achieve net zero. 
So we have to strike a balance at the way we report um, the fact that we may see reductions coming more quickly than we previously thought. So that's just a thought there. My question is really about sea level rise. And when I spoke to the World Meteorological Organization and others, you know, they're all using this expression baked in with sea level rise, uh, probably more so than we might see things drop in the atmosphere. Um, what are you seeing from, from your perspectives? And, um, you know, a lot of scientists are actually um, debating between themselves how bad sea level rise is going to be. Uh, and some feel that, you know, tipping points and other accelerators are seeing increased melting in Antarctica and uh, Greenland. Um, so are we going to revise these down or do you think these are still, uh, you know, a very serious and real threat, which could be much more substantial than some of the more conservative estimates? Mike, yeah, I'd like for that. to that first and then I'm going <clears> to <throat> ask Celine to follow up. Uh, thanks. Yeah, great question. Um, and, uh, you know, um, the, the, you know, the, the, the reality here is that, um, you know, there is a huge amount of uncertainty when it comes to uh, how close we are to uh, tipping points, uh, you know, impacting the disintegration of the major ice sheets, the West Antarctic ice sheet, the Greenland ice sheet. And, you know, we see the ice shelves um, becoming destabilized. These ice shelves prop up the inland parts of the ice sheet. So when they disappear, um, many of them are being melted from below, then the inland ice can begin to surge out to sea even more quickly. So there's a huge amount of uncertainty. And, you know, if you talk to different experts um, in ice sheet modeling and sea level rise, uh, you will find a wide variety of views, um, uh, a wide range of views on this, which speaks to the fact that there is a lot of uncertainty and we're not fully confident that we have all of the relevant processes represented well enough in the models to be confident with those predictions. So once again, uncertainty isn't our friend um, here. Um, there is the potential, and we have seen that when it comes to ice sheets and sea level rise at every juncture. Um, as our understanding has improved, we've been talking about the potential for larger amounts and more rapid um, amounts of sea level rise. And, and, and so the best, you know, you, you have to understand those caveats. It's still relevant to say that our best understanding is well represented by the conclusions of the most recent international assessments, the most recent IPCC working group one assessment. And the consensus represented in that report is that if we keep warming below one and a half degrees Celsius, that number we all continue to talk about, we can probably keep sea level rise about a meter to under a meter, meter and a half. That's bad. That'll require huge, you know, that'll be massively destabilizing, but we can probably deal with that, um, especially if it takes a century or more to happen. On the other hand, if we blow past that one and a half degree Celsius limit, then we have to start talking about two, three, four, five meters of sea level rise. How quickly can that happen? Um, again, at every juncture, we have un we, we've, we've learned that these systems are more dynamic than we had envisioned and things can happen faster than we had envisioned. And so there is, there's a re reason for concern and it underscores once again, the importance, the urgency 
of taking action now. Uh, this is a minefield. It's not a cliff. It's a minefield we're walking out onto. And we have to stop that forward lurch uh, because we will encounter more and more of these potential tipping points and disasters. Thanks, Mike. <clears throat> Thanks, Mike. Just to clarify, when you say that the uh, the idea that if we keep it to 1.5 degrees temperature rise, that we could limit the sea level rise to a meter, meter and a half, is that over the next hundred years, or are we talking about the next millennia? Because most of the scientists I've spoken to say over the next millennia, it's going to be a heck of a lot more than a meter and a half. Yeah, again, um, this is sort of most of these projections are looking out to 2100 or so. Um, but if you look at the underlying studies, there are studies that suggest that we haven't yet passed that tipping point where we um, you know, commit to the collapse of most of the West Antarctic ice sheet. So oh. there's a certain amount of additional warming that's still left if, uh, for us to commit to that. Exactly how much? <clears throat> is it one and a half? Could it be less? Again, uncertainty isn't our friend here. So I'm gonna to turn to Ian James in a moment, but Salim, I have to ask you first, we're talking about sea level rise. You were kind enough some years ago to invite me to Bangladesh. And uh, you know, we were down there at the Southern edge of Bangladesh for a while, which is arguably the most threatened place in the world by sea level rise, because it is so flat, as you mentioned, the two, two of the biggest rivers in the world, huge Delta. You can look out for 30 miles and it's flat as a pool table. Um, and already then, that was 10 years ago, the rice fields, uh, the rice yields were going down because the influx of sea water was uh, making the, the soil salty. So mm -hmm. for Bangladesh, you know, even a meter and a half, high, you know, very populated country, how do you deal with a, a, a meter and a half of sea level rise, even with all of the adaptation skills and tenacity that you all have? That's a great question, Mark. Uh, so uh, the, the answer to the question about sea level rise, you know, speaking from the front lines where I'm located is that it is very location specific. So what Mike was talking about is global sea level rise from melting of the ice sheets, etc. But in every single location, the actual um, local sea level rise will have to take into account what the land is doing. If the land is stable, you get a certain amount of sea level rise. If the land is subsiding, which is the case in much of the delta in Bangladesh, then you're getting an additional increase of salinity into the soil, which you just mentioned that we are having here in Bangladesh. And so in, in crude terms, the coast of Bangladesh has three major sectors. The southwestern part is the mangrove forest, the Sundarbans, the biggest mangrove in the world, where there's not much we can do. The, the plants are there. Sea level rise is happening, salinity is intruding, the salt-tolerant varieties of trees are surviving and the salt-intolerant varieties are, are getting decimated and we're having quite a significant ecosystem impact in the mangrove. Then in the central part, which is the delta of the rivers, the two big rivers that I mentioned, that's what you're talking about, highly populated, densely populated, highly dependent on rice cultivation, but the good news is that, you know, our rice scientists have come up with salt tolerant varieties of rice. And if you were to come back and visit that area, you would find millions of farmers on millions of hectares growing salt tolerant varieties of rice produced by our scientists, our rice breeding scientists and produced and, and sold by the, uh, you know, the private sector companies. 
and farmers buying them at a higher price than the traditional varieties, willing to pay that higher price because they survived the salinity levels. And we, we are now still able to grow rice. Now, there's a limit to how much that can be done. And your question about the one meter, one and a half meter, they, at certain point, we simply will not be able to uh, adapt and cope and people will have to move. And we will see what we now are beginning to see are climate migrants leaving the low-lying coastal area and ending up in the cities like Dhaka City. Um, and in fact, we are trying to promote the idea of uh, developing the what we call uh, climate resilient migrant friendly towns so that these potential climate migrants don't end up in the slums of Dhaka, but go to these other towns where we create opportunities for them to stay and live and become uh, citizens over time, because it's going to be inevitable. We cannot prevent a certain degree of climate migration over the coming decade or two. It'll be slow, but it'll be inevitable and we have to deal with it. Thank you, Salim. I'm going to be really quick here. Ian James, uh, please ask your question, and it's going to be for Mike Mann about uh, the next IPCC report, and then we must close. Ian James of the Los yes, Angeles. Thank you. Uh, so looking ahead to the February 28th report, how do you think the findings that you've been discussing, the direct and immediate impact of reducing carbon emissions, how do you see those insights connecting to the topics that will be covered in the upcoming report uh, focused on impacts, adaptation, and vulnerability? And how do you think the latest science should translate into action and solutions? Yeah, thanks, Ian. Uh, great question. Um, you know, there is here, in this case, a very direct relationship between the two working groups. There isn't always, but in this case, the basic science that tells us about how much of a warming commitment we have um, also informs so many of these impacts that we're seeing. Some of them, you know, as we said, um, the ocean warming, the deep ocean warming will continue on, sea level rise will continue on. But many of the you know, extreme weather events that we've seen, uh, the unprecedented heat waves and wildfires and floods and superstorms, um, those are tied pretty closely to the surface warming. And so you know, that, that, that tells us a lot. Uh, we already are dealing with those impacts, those devastating impacts, but you know, there is the potential to prevent them from getting much worse by limiting the warming. And so I think that understanding, uh, you know, I haven't seen the, uh, you know, the final working group two report yet, but the dirty secret that many of you are probably in on is there can't really be any true surprises in these reports because they're assessment reports. They're based on the cumulative literature over the past several years, over the past five years. And so if you're already immersed in that literature, and I, uh, you know, a, a lot of you are, a lot of you are already immersed in the sort of in the research into climate impacts, um, there won't be surprises there. It'll be the stuff that you already know being clarified um, and uh, being, you know, uh, hopefully characterized in, in, in a way that does reflect our best current understanding. But, um, you know, that's uh, the bottom line is that we're already dealing with a new normal, if you like. That's the best case scenario. We already have to deal with this elevated risk that we're seeing now, um, but we can prevent it from getting worse. And I think the report will make that um, clear as well. Thank you, Michael Mann of Penn State University. Thank you, Salim al-Haq of the International Center for Climate Change and Development in Bangladesh. And special gold star to you, Salim, for staying up <laughs> so late, Dhaka time. Thank you, uh, my esteemed co-moderator, Laura Helmuth at Scientific American. And thank you all for listening in.
So we've got a chance to hold back the heating, but what mindset will help us do it? We have a professor of economics. He's a Jane, and he works at London University. He says economics has held a chainsaw to nature, and we need to open our minds to traditions that protect nature. In other words, a change of philosophy. And then we hear from Catherine Bowen. She's a professor of medicine and a lead author of the latest IPCC report. But she also wants us to focus on nature. She says there's a new concept of planetary health emerging and we should take the humans out of the core. Here's Catherine Bowen, who is speaking to us despite the fact that she had COVID. And after that, we'll hear Professor Atul K. Sharp. Thanks, Arthur. Yeah, so the report really, um, for the first time, puts a very sharp focus on the importance of looking at humans, nature and society as three interlinked systems, again, the systems within each. And so this, um, as we know, um, the term that's that's um, starting to materialise more commonly is planetary health. Uh, so the, the summary for policymakers in particular has taken this term um, and and really embedded it in its framing. But I do think that the concept of planetary health, if it's used appropriately, definitely is really provides us with strong potential to remind ourselves that it's not just about humans. It's about nature in and of itself. It's also reflecting, you know, we, ha- we have to still use this term in the report because it's reflected in the literature, but ecosystem services is still very anthropocentric as well and it's not about the services that ecosystems provide us it's about using this other language that's also emerging that nature's contributions to humans rather than ecosystem services so we have to use both because they're both are reflected in the literature but the language we use is so fundamentally important and this shift away from, from humans at the core of everything is absolutely vital. And the efforts we want to do in terms of um, rapidly accelerating and transforming our responses to be able to, to cope with and, and adapt and build climate resilient um, development is, is much more than for humans. It's in essence, it really should be purely for our natural environment. So that's that's a bit of a spiel from me around, around that issue. But I'm really passionate about taking the humans out of the core. Sometimes for us, messaging around the human health, it's actually what we have to do is we have to put human health at the core because that is what cuts through. But um, ultimately, um, you know, in a more philosophical sense, it's it's really, really vital to, to reiterate the importance of nature in and of itself. I will start uh, with the universal prayer. Shivamastu sarva jagata parahita nirita bhavantu bhutagana dosha prayantu nasam sarvatra sukhi bhavatu loka sarvatra sukhi bhavatu loka This is a prayer for the happiness and peace of all living beings on the planet and uh, it asks each one of us to uh, work hard towards supporting one another and improving the well-being and welfare of one another. So we are living in the Anthropocene 
And this Anthropocene demands a transformation of our ideology. And economics is a core part of that. And it has held a chainsaw on nature, converting it into property and resource. Can we really say we own the land or that people are simply labor as a result of a possessive and materialistic ideology? We have vast inequality and aggressive financial practices and markets and institutions which have never really calculated their plunder of nature and uh, society. The same people and institutions which led to this ecological calamity cannot suddenly change to be more ethical and responsible. And we would be foolish to believe them. We have no choice but to study sustainable wisdom traditions and their living communities and work with them to transform society. We especially need to draw from Dharmic cultures and traditions, which did not see nature as other, and instead they understood the science and harmony of nature and sought to protect it rather than possess or exploit it. In the Hindu Dharma, Vasudeva Kutumbakam means the whole planet is one family, including all living beings. Thank you for listening to the Climate Action Show on Community Radio, 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. Thank you to our guests tonight, Mark Herzgard from Covering Climate Now and the two scientists he brought to us, Dr. Michael Mann and Dr. Salim Al-Huk. Thank you to Kaha and who brought us Professor Catherine Bowen and to Ark who brought us Professor Atul K. Shah. Our feedback for the week comes from Elizabeth in Mudgee. She says about our show on the Transition Film Festival, which you can find the podcast on 3CR, and we also have streaming live now on 3CR, so you can just go to 3CR and find that show quite easily. She says, this is her feedback, all the interviews were excellent. What a good show. No rain in Mudgee while the north is facing a catastrophe. How many times can people sustain a flood? Yes, Babette, thank you very much from Maji. And I will read feedback on air anytime you'd like, anyone would like to send us some thoughts or responses. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.